Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now, I'm just a little bit worried that we, this is, uh, let's all stand together and stretch our legs there for a second. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. We don't often do this, but just to, uh, I'm afraid that we might fall asleep because this sermon is going to be really boring. <laughs> 15 to 23, Romans 6, 15 to 23, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You follow along in your copy of God's Word. The Apostle Paul says, it's not just Paul saying it, it's the Holy Spirit saying it through the Apostle Paul, which means it is God saying it. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be seated. Thank you for indulging me for those few minutes. The gospel of God's grace is the most glorious message you'll ever hear. The greatest news you'll ever hear is the good news of redemption through Christ's blood on the cross. Now, the gospel of God's grace means that the vilest sinner can, by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be justified, saved, and forgiven of all their sins, both past, present, and future. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 4, and 5. Faith saves faith saves, he drills it down so deeply, he hits it so soundly that it is an irremovable fundamental of Christian doctrine, justification by faith alone. Now this idea of justification alone produces a natural objection in the minds of those who hear it. And the question is, if salvation is given to me by faith, if I do nothing to get saved, or to earn salvation, except believe, what do I do about the sinning? Does it matter if I sin or not? Should I keep on sinning intentionally to make the gospel more glorious, to kind of highlight the gloriousness of grace? Do I have a license to sin? Now, I've, been a, I've been a Baptist my whole life. I'm Baptist born, Baptist bred. And when I die, I'll be Baptist what? <laughs> I say that fairly often. <laughs> Now, my friends, when I was growing up, I had friends who went to other kinds of churches, and I didn't have some interaction with them. They would say, you know, you Baptists, you believe you can, you know, once saved, always saved, live like the devil, and still go to heaven. That's what, that was their big criticism of it. Because in some Christian circles or denominations or churches, 
they teach that salvation is like 95% Jesus saving you and then 5% you keeping up your end of the deal. That's a very common thing. That's a kind of teaching that's actually quite attractive to you and to me because anything worth having is worth what? Working for. You want to have a second car? Work harder. You want to get a boat? Work harder. You want to kill a deer? Buy a spotlight. (laughs) Anything worth doing is worth working hard for, right? Being innovative and cutting edge, (laughs) using technology. (laughs) so it makes sense to us on one hand that eternal life heaven streets of gold the gloriousness of the eternal realm forgiveness of sins it makes sense to us that we should have to do some kind of penance or do some kind of work to offer some kind of pleasing sacrifice to god in order to be saved it makes sense to us but the apostle paul the holy spirit god says otherwise now people trip over this And so as Paul is running his, he's teaching us about the gospel, in Romans chapter 6, two times, he kind of anticipates the question, are you saying, Paul, that it doesn't matter if I sin anymore? If salvation is given to me for free, does it matter if I sin anymore? Am I free to live live and do all the sins that I want to do? Two times, it's in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Now the people in Paul's day, especially Jews, they had a real problem with this. And so did Gentiles because every religion, Christian religion, heathen religion, pagan religion, Mohammedanism, They all teach salvation comes through works. So the major heresy of Paul's day and for the first 30 to 50 years of Christendom on the earth was this idea about salvation without works. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. And then Acts chapter 15, the great Jerusalem council is selling this this, this truth that salvation is by faith alone without admixture of works. I think I've been clear about this already, but I've written down here to say, let there be no mistake. If you want to go to heaven, you, yourself, not your mama, not your daddy, not somebody on your behalf, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have to do it. You have to realize that you're a sinner and that you have no righteousness of your own. You need to call upon Christ to save you. If you call upon Christ to save you, he will give to you his very own righteousness, which means through faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive Christ's righteousness, which means that you become as righteous as God himself. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call us brethren, and God's not afraid to call us his children. It's John 1, 12 through 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's our identity. Through faith in Christ. Now, if you want to go to heaven, put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith anywhere else, and you're going to go to hell. That's the bottom line. If your faith is in your baptism, 
if it's in communion, if it's in good deeds, if it's in agnosticism or atheism, you're going to go to hell. If you want to go to heaven, you have to put your faith in Christ. And any church or teacher who teaches a works plus faith or anything other than just faith alone for salvation, they are one of two things. They are either sadly mistaken, because sometimes preachers err. Sometimes Christian teachers misunderstand. They are either sadly mistaken or they're actually a messenger of Satan. I don't know that they realize they're a messenger of Satan. Well, that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says. Now, within Christendom, there are two views about the Christian life. There's two prominent views. One is called antinomianism, which means basically lawlessness, a life without law. And the other extreme is legalism. Now, I have had the singular experience of growing up with a lot of legalism and very little antinomianism. My Christian life was kind of put your faith in Jesus Christ and then, and then work really hard at keeping your nose clean all the time. So very, a very strict, I say this sometimes, my father used to get offended, offended by it. He probably still does. But I used to say that I was raised Baptist Amish. kind of rings the bell, doesn't it? Yeah. Because <laughs> we had all these rules, all these things. And this set of rules was kind of a moving target, too. It changed pastor to pastor, church to church. So at one church with one pastor, they would be against TV. But then at another church, another pastor, they would be for TV. Sometimes it depended on if the guy liked baseball or not. So I grew up with this very rigid code. And then I become a Christian myself. I become a Christian pastor. And then I realized from reading the New Testament that there's this thing called the New Covenant. And in the New Covenant, there is amazing freedom, amazing liberty, not to sin, but to enjoy what God has given to us to enjoy. And sometimes that freedom becomes antinomianism. Have you ever owned a dog? You ever owned a dog that you kept on a chain? Like a civilized person. <laughs> when I was a kid, all of our dogs were on chains. Because when you let them off the chain, you know, they would chew your leg off. They are just mean dogs, you know. <laughs> Hunting dogs, that kind of thing. I, we'd have these dogs, and we had this little dog named Boots. Boots was, my very, was my, actually my, my second dog we ever had. But we kept boots on a chain because if you let off the chain, she'd run her off. She'd run over the country and kill chickens and all kinds of stuff. So we kept her on a chain. Now, every once in a while, I'd let boots off the chain just for fun. And when you let her off that chain, she would just run a circle. Woo, 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 bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because you go like, no chain, no chain, no chain. Woo, 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 bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger circles until finally, boom, she was gone. She's just gone. Now, sometimes when you're a Christian like me and you're raised Baptist Amish and you get let off the chain, what happens? Go crazy. This is what happens to Christian, teen Christian teenagers who are raised in Christian homes sometimes. They get to be, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they go to college, they get out of the house, and they get off the chain, and what do they do? They've got to feel it out, you know? And so sometimes there's an extreme. 
When you go from legalism, which is what the Jews were, very legalistic law keepers, and you come to Christianity, and now Christianity says, hey, you're saved by faith, you're justified before God, you're not going to go to heaven because of what you do. The, the, the consequences, the reaction is, is people, they just go the other way, which is antinomianism. Now, there is a, there are, both those things are attractive to people. Sometimes people find safety and security in legalism because it's very black and white. It's very law-oriented. Rule keeper. Are any of you here rule keepers? Anybody like that? Is there anybody here that somebody tells you a rule, you're automatically going to do opposite? That's, that's who's preaching to you right there. I don't, like, I don't like rules, and I just, you know, try to keep, I don't really care for them. So both these things are attractive to people. And there's a portion of both legalism and antinomianism that are true, that are helpful things. And you kind of have to work it out. John Owen, a Reformed theologian of many centuries ago, he said, it is a great theologian who can distinguish between law and grace. And when he said that, he was talking about this idea of Christian liberty and freedoms. What is law and what is grace? Sometimes it's kind of hard to, to figure it out. And if you say, well, it's easy for me, I'd love to talk to you after church <laughs> so we can have, uh, so I can get some help over here. Now, the apostle tells us in chapter 6 how this works out in our lives. You've come to faith in Christ. Now you've become Christians. Now here's how we should feel about the sins. Here's how we should feel about the sins. In chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says that we're not to sin. We're not free to sin. We're, we are not to live in sin. Now, this confirms the idea that justification is ours by faith and justification is not contingent on our holding up the, our end of the bargain. God did not save you and say, here you go, you're on your way to heaven, now keep up your end of the bargain. Do your bit, just keep it. No, the whole new covenant, the whole new covenant salvation rests upon the back of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and he saves you. You don't save yourself. It's not you hanging on to his hand. It's him hanging on to your hand. And John 10 says that my sheep are in my hand and ain't nobody going to pluck them out. So God's got you. He's got you forever. He's taken you by his grace. So God in Christ holds up both ends of the bargain. And the instrument that opens the door to salvation is faith. Now, not everybody likes to think about the, the instrument of faith. Now, this objection to saying we're saved by faith sometimes comes from, or saved by our exercise of faith, sometimes comes from Ephesians 2, where the Apostle Paul says that faith is a gift that's given to you so you can believe, which is true. And faith is a gift. Anyone who is here today who has put their faith in Jesus Christ has only been able to do so because the Holy Spirit regenerated you and gave you the gift of faith before you believed. God opened your eyes, he brought you to life, and the first reaction of the newly born-again person is to believe the gospel. Because before you believe the gospel, you are dead in sins. You're unable to save yourself. This is what Ephesians 2 says. So faith is a gift that's given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, you know, theologians, they talk about the ordo salutis, all, this, all the things that have to take place in order to be saved. And sometimes, this is where most of my arguments with friends come up, is everybody strains at, these, at, these, uh, at the chronologies. But if you put your faith in Christ, 
If you have put your faith in Christ, I just want you to know this. You were only able to do that because the Holy Spirit enabled you to do that. You're saved by God. It's all God working to save you. To save you. Now, if you can ever get it settled in your mind that you're saved by faith, you'll be a much happier person. You'll be a much happier Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, he says that the foundation stone of spiritual happiness is a right understanding of justification by faith. If you're not sure you're saved, it's hard to be happy at all. Because you walk around wondering, is God going to get me? My great-grandma and grandpa, Delbert and Maxine Chronic, they were holiness Pentecostal people. I mean, when I say holiness, I mean they were crazy holiness people. She wore funny clothes. All he ever wore was overalls and a white shirt and black shoes. He never sped because he believed that if, you, if the rapture took place, that's where Jesus returns, he believed that if Jesus returned while he was going 56 and 55, he wasn't going to make it to glory. Why do you want to live like that? Just under this burdensome, this oppression. I never saw them crack a smile. I never saw them laugh. Because if they laughed at the wrong thing, there goes their salvation. They were un- under the burden of it. Friends, if you put your faith in Christ, you, you're, the biggest problem you've ever had has been taken care of, and you can just kind of relax. And, he, and, and that's hard to do. It's hard to just trust. In Hebrews chap- chapter 4, the apostle Paul says, not Paul, I don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says that we should labor to enter into rest. We should work to rest in what Christ has done for us. Sometimes it's hard to rest. Sometimes it's hard to relax. Sometimes it's just hard to trust God. But we have to work at it, resting in his saving hands. Resting in his hands. Now, in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 6, Paul talks about this new position. And he says, in this new position, we now have a choice that we didn't have before. Now we are the servants of Christ, and now we can do good. I mean, really and truly, honestly, do good. We can do good things now as born-again people who are slaves of Christ. But before we were slaves of Christ, before we were born again, the things that we did that were good were polluted by original sin. They always had disdain of sin. Is it, do you know anybody in your work or life who you just can't stand? Who when you see them coming, you may not roll your eyes on the outside, but on the inside, <laughs> you've rolled them. <laughs> you got to be careful about that. There's a, I'll tell you this dumb story. There's a video when I was in college of a college choir singing. I was part of this college choir, and we were singing. And uh, I'm in the front row, standing there, you know, singing. Not too loud, <laughs> but singing. And there's a guy behind me who I did not like. I couldn't stand him. I loathed him. We lived in the same room together. I couldn't stand him. I loathed him. I, play, I, I just couldn't take him. And so, but he had a good singing voice. So guess who gets to sing a solo? Him. And so there I am standing in the front, front row singing. And when he starts his solo, I go, ooh. <laughs> 
It's on video for the ages. <laughs> so you got to be careful. I didn't even know I did it. I just like, oh, I hit him again. Because he's hanging with his nose. It's just, <laughs> so there are people who you do not care for. And when people enter that category of you can't stand them no matter what they do, anything that they do, it's hard to appreciate, isn't it? It's hard to appreciate any, anything they do that's positive or helpful. You don't want to give them any credit because they have that stain on them, right? Now, before you were born again, every good work you did had the stain of sin on it. The stain of sin. So that's why in Isaiah 64, 6, it says that all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag. Every good thing that we do before we are in Christ has that stink on it. It's dirty. But now, the apostle says, we are clean. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse number 11, Paul describes the Corinthian people. He says, some of you people were homosexuals. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were nasty no-goods. But now, he says, you are clean. But now you are washed. Now you are pure by the word of the gospel. So when we come into Christ, all of our past stain has been taken away. And now we are clean. And in this new position, we are able to now make a new choice. We're able to choose to serve God with purity. And to demonstrate this, the apostle uses the illustration of slavery. And he says that as slaves, that slaves submit to whomever they belong. And he contrasts the two. He says that the, in, in, when you were outside of Christ, you were a slave to sin. But now that you're in Christ, now you're a slave to righteousness. And you should choose to serve the master to whom you belong. And that's the major thesis of chapter 6, is you don't belong to sin anymore. Domin- that dominion has been broken over you. And he contrasts this with who we once belonged to, with who we belong to now. Now this is a, a very common thing that the apostle does. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, the apostle Paul has to remind the free-willing Corinthian Christians that they were bought with a price. They don't belong to themselves anymore. And he, and he really nails it down. You're not yours. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Now, to illustrate this, let's say I sold you a car. Let's say I sell you a car. Let's say I sell you a Camaro. A gold Camaro. Let's say I sold you a car. And we sign the title, you know, and we swap papers, we swap money, and I give you the keys. But I keep a key for myself. And on Friday nights I come by while you're inside eating supper and slide behind the wheel and boom, 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 and take it out. Well, that'd be theft. That, that's wrong. I don't, it doesn't belong to me anymore. And my friends, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you became God's child. You became a slave, a servant of righteousness. You don't belong to sin anymore. You do not belong to sin anymore. And therefore, you are not supposed to sin anymore. This is your great ambition. This is your great objective. You don't belong to that anymore. That's not for you anymore. 
So you need to stop it. The apostle reminds them that what they're doing is bad for them. Now, Paul says this to the Romans because they already know this to be true. In verses 17 through 18, Paul addresses their heartfelt inclination to obey Christ. You see, the Romans, they knew that they were saved and they had had a problem because they had been born again, but they still wanted to sin. They'd been born again, but they still wanted to sin. And so after a while, this desire to sin doesn't seem to be going away. Now, I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old, which means I've been a, a Christian. Uh, I don't know how many years that would be. <laughs> About 30-odd years, I guess, I've been a Christian. And in that 30-odd years of being a Christian, the desire to do sins hasn't let up a bit. Hasn't let up a bit. Somebody fouls me playing basketball, you know what I want to do? Foul them back. Somebody makes me mad, you don't know how many people I've murdered in my heart. (laughs) When, When there's more month than there is money in the bank, Let's see. I could rob a bank. (laughs) All all the things that go on in my mind, all these sinful passions, desires that leap up within me. And and it's 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 crazy. If you if you're here and you're a Christian, you probably know what I'm talking about. There's all these wrestlings with all kinds of temptations, all kinds of sins. They just leap out of us. In Mark chapter 8. Jesus talks about this. It's not that which goes into the man that defiles the man, but what comes out of the man. We are corrupt from the inside to the outside. And, we, and as a Christian, I've been trying for 30 years to live without sin, and guess what? I still haven't achieved it yet. I'm still struggling with some of the same things. Ligon Duncan said one time that he had prayed for years that God would deliver him from one particular prevailing, besetting sin. And he said, in one day... When he was praying, he felt like he'd been delivered from it just in a second. Boom. He didn't say what it was, but he said in that moment it was gone. And he said almost immediately it was replaced by another. Man, that was so discouraging to me. Because I thought, you mean there is no victory over this? There's no eradication of the sin nature? And that's true, there is not. But this wrestling is ongoing with sins. Ongoing with sins. And these Roman people, they had begun to think, man, I'm wrestling with this all the time. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Listen, if you're here and you are wrestling with sins, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. The fact that you are wrestling with sins probably means that you are a Christian. Because people who are not Christians, they don't seem to care about sin at all. But those who are Christians, they have this conflict within them. Now, Having grown up, you know, Baptist Amish, one of, the, one of the saddest experiences of my Christian life has been the very few Christians will act like or let you know that they are struggling with sin. James 5.16 says this. Confess your, authorized version I think, says confess your faults one to another. Newer translations say confess your sins one to another. And that means that there should be a a mutual sharing 
of struggles. Now, this, and sometimes I've talked to pastors about this, and they say, well, I don't think we want everybody in the church standing up and telling all their sins. And that's probably true. It's probably true. But, there is, but the idea, I think, there is we should avoid a smug kind of Christianity that says, you know, I don't struggle with any sins. I don't have any sin problems. Look, you, you, you ever been talking to somebody and they're telling you about something that's going on in their life and in, in your mind you're judging them? Well, I would never say that. If they would have only been smarter, wiser, more shrewd, they wouldn't have had that problem. We need to avoid that smug kind of Christianity. I want you to take a second. This is in my notes to say, so I know it's okay. Look around the room. Look, look around the room. Just look to your left, look to your right. Just, just kind of give everybody the eye. Like they scraped your car in the parking lot. <laughs> now, everybody here seems to look pretty legit. Everybody here looks like they're pretty well squared away. And I don't know everybody in this room, but I do know some people in this room. I, I know some people's stories of their lives. Not everybody, but I know some. There are people in this room who have who have struggled with and committed sexual sins, who've had substance problems, who've been through misconduct of various kinds. And that's just the things we know about. Because everybody in this room is a sinner. And if we poked around in your past, we'd probably find lots of evidence of sins. And this struggling with sins is where we should be sharing with one another. When you're dealing with someone, talking with someone who's burdened with their sins, don't give them a lecture Don't lay the law on them. Lay grace and mercy on them. And if you've been struggling with the same kind of category of sins that they struggle with, tell them you've been struggling with it too. Now, I use the word category on purpose because, let's just just say it this way. I don't know if I should say that. There are, you could take the Ten Commandments kind of as ten categories of sins, right? Ten categories. And when you're talking with someone, we haven't all committed the same exact specific sin, but we've committed the same kind of categories of sin. So if we said sexual sins, well, there's a whole category of things under that, isn't there? If you had, thou shalt not bear false witness, that's, that's about legality, Illegal behaviors, that's a whole category of sins. If you said, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, the first commandment, that's a whole category of sins, of idolatry. You may not have committed the specific sin someone else has, but you can, you've, you've, been in the, you've committed the category of sins they have. And you can commiserate with them a little bit. And you can encourage them. Now, when I was in college, this, 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 there's two examples of when this happened two different times in my Christian life. When I was in college, our pastor, Kenny Graham, he was preaching and he was telling a story about this struggle with sin. And he said his father, Virgil Graham, who was also a pastor from the great state of Illinois, he was a pastor and he had a fairly large church and he had several assistant pastors, staff pastors. And one of his assistant pastors came to him and said, Dr. Graham, I'm really, I got this, I'm struggling with sin all the time. I don't know if I'm really born again. And Virgil said, now I don't really recommend this, but Virgil himself, 
he kept a diary of all the sins he confessed. I want you to think about that. A, a A written diary of all the sins he would confess. He would write them out, and then he'd write the date he confessed them to God. And he kept, he kept a list of them. And when this guy came to him and said, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I'm really struggling with all these sins. All these appetites and desires are leaping up and boiling out all the time. There's no way I can be a Christian. Virgil, in an act of extreme humility, handed the guy his diary and said, read through that. I know I'm a Christian. Take a look at what, what I've been struggling with. The guy went away, thumbed through it several pages, came back and said, wow, I don't think you're a Christian. (laughs) Well, the guy came back and said, man, that was just what I needed to lift him up to know. To know that someone else has been struggling just as I have been struggling with these sins. So as Christians, we are sinners, all of us. And we struggle with them. This is what Paul is talking about. We're we're in this this conflict between the two. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. But that slavery is over. Verse 18, now we've been set free from sin. Haven't become slaves of righteousness. You see, even though we wrestle with the sins, even though we lapse into sins, our status as a slave of righteousness never is revoked. Because we're saved by faith in Christ. In verses 16 to 20, verses 19 to 20, Griffith Thomas says that here there is a transferal of moral energy that takes place. The apostle illustrates it by talking about slavery. You were the slave of one person, now you're the slave of a new master. He says, This is an illustration. I'm trying to get it down where you can understand it. You've been freed from sin. You are a slave to righteousness. And because you've been born again, now the new master, the Holy Spirit, is prompting you to serve Christ. And he gets into that more in chapter 8. Now in verses 21 to 23, here's the contrast of these two lives. Paul is saying, this is why you don't want to go into the sins. This is where sin was taking you. The sin leads to death. Even if sinful living brings you fabulous wealth, power, and joy, the ultimate end of a life devoted to sinfulness is death. But he says obeying God brings eternal life. Now, the fruit of justification is not perfection. It's easy to to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that your good behavior seals the deal on your salvation. If that's what he was saying, he's just countermanded everything he has said so far. The fruit of justification is not perfection in life. The fruit of justification is you begin a life of sanctification. I try to look up all the Greek tenses of this. But it's just kind of this ongoing holying of ourselves. Where we're making ourselves, we're working at becoming more and more clean, holy. This is a lifelong process of resisting the old master to serve the new one. And Paul says that great verse in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, if you notice carefully, you'll see there are no wages of sanctification. But there is a wage of sin. If you pursue sin, it's death. But sanctification, 
Eternal life is a gift. This, this journey, this walk we have with Christ is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the contrast here is that, what, is that the old status, being a slave to sin, brought us death and hell. But the new life in Christ brings us eternal life. We're free from the slavery of sin, and we are free now to choose lives that glorify our new master. And this, is what, this, this is our new ambition. I am now living for Christ, and I'm submitting to the new master who has taken me over. Now here I say this to you in conclusion. No matter how imperfectly we follow righteousness, our souls are secure by faith in Christ. Salvation will not and cannot leave us unaffected. The new nature comes in. And if you're here this morning and you're living with that conflict, you have the new nature calling upon you to serve Christ and the old nature calling upon you to serve sin, that's actually good news. Because that's, what, that's the Christian experience. Read yourself into Romans chapter 7 and you'll see it. Paul says, there is a great conflict within me. A great conflict. And so here is my, here's my law for you, okay? You ready for some legalism? Do your best and submit to Christ. Do your best. Submit to Christ who is your master. Do not submit to sin who is not your master. When you fail him, when you fail Christ, and you look up into heaven, you won't see a scowl. You'll see a smiling face that says, okay, let's try again. Going forward, steadily pursuing Christ-likeness. Let's pray together. the help of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.